We're looking this morning at the subject, Christ ascended, ruling, and returning. Firstly, if you'll notice your bulletin outline, we're talking about ascension and its implications. We have this in our text, which is Ephesians 4, verse 9, rather parenthetical. It asks a very practical and logical question, which is this. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? Lower, that is, contrasted to heaven. Lower in the sense of humiliation. This is so obvious as to almost not require a statement, and yet it needs to be stated because people, by and large, have no clue as to the real identity of Jesus Christ. For the majority of the world, Jesus was the son of Mary and Joseph through the natural biological process of procreation. He was their son. He grew up. He became a great teacher of ethics. His teaching was in radical contrast to the religious figures of his day. So tension mounted. Jealous religious leaders of his day conspired against him. Pilate, the Roman governor Herod, the vice-regent of Caesar, were pulled into the conflict on political grounds. Jesus was tried. He was crucified as the enemy of the state in preference to Barabbas, a known murderer and a known insurrectionist. He died as a victim of intrigue and was buried. End of story. That's the world's concept of Jesus. But Paul in our text is saying something like this. Not so fast. Not so fast. What about the empty tomb? What about the frightened Roman guard at the tomb who were paid off to spread the lie that Jesus' disciples had come in the night and stole his body away. Matthew 28, verse 13. You can read about that. What about the multitude of reappearances of Jesus to his disciples for 40 days after his resurrection? Acts 1, verse 3. In which he ate with them and encouraged them and ministered to them. What about his ascension higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Verse 10 of our text. Also Acts 1 verse 9. Oh and what about the eyewitnesses who saw him go. Not just the 11 apostles. But Matthias the replacement for Judas. So that's 12. And, and about 119 others that were there on that day. Acts 1 verse 22. You see, the evidence piles up if you look at all of Scripture and not just uh, surmise that you know certain things. Now, ascension preposes, presupposes rather that he descended. Going up in his case means that he first came down. It's true that Jesus had an earthly mother, Mary. But it is not true that Joseph was his father who refrained from sexual relations with Mary on purpose so that her child would not be attributed to him. 
So how do you know that? Well, you can read about it. Matthew 1, verse 24 specifically states that. Mary's child was conceived in her as a virgin, miraculously by the Holy Spirit of God, overpowering her. And that is why the angel explained to her these words, The Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Luke 1 verse 35. Not your son, not Joseph's son, but the Son of God. And so what we have here is a pre-existent being. The second person of the triune God, the Son, leaving his spirit state and taking on human form. What Mary provided for him, in his own words by the way, was this. When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you, Father, did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. And then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. Hebrews 10, verse 5 and following. And five verses later, he says, And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So writes the writer of Hebrews. Now the author is describing God incarnate. Incarnate means in the flesh. God in flesh, encased in flesh. God comes in the flesh. He's called Emmanuel, God with us. Yes, but even more, the writer of Hebrews says, since the children, that is all those he intends to say, since they have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. Hebrews 2 and verse 14. So Mary, Mary became the human incubator to produce a human body, a human nature for God's Son to equip Him to die. Spirits cannot die. Human beings can die. Paul puts it this way, but when the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Galatians 4, verse 4. We ought to consider here all the copious references to Christ coming into our world, which would be a rather strange thing, to, a strange way to describe Him if he's just the product of Joseph and Mary. But let me read some of these for you. Hebrews 10, verse 5. When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you did not desire. He came into the world. Strange way to say it. Or again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Hebrews 1, verse 6. He brought His firstborn into the world. Isaiah, some 700 years before the birth of Jesus, wrote, The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, 
and will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah 7 verse 14. And in similar fashion, Jeremiah the prophet foretold, the Lord will create a new thing on earth. A woman, a woman will surround, English Standard Version says, and circle a man. Jeremiah 31 verse 22. That is in the womb, without male sperm, and by God's almighty power. She, by herself, will produce, or not produce, but encircle and incubate a man. Or we have it in John 1 verse 14. The Word, speaking of Christ, became flesh and made His dwelling among us and we have seen His glory. The glory of the one and only, the one who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now this would explain Jesus' prayer the night of His crucifixion. After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed. Here's what he prayed. Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. John 17, verse 4 and 5. He goes on to say, I will remain in the world no longer. But they, speaking of his disciples, are still in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Please protect them by the power of your name. Verse 11 and 12. So here he's praying the night of his crucifixion and we observe that the work of Christ in coming to earth was about to be completed and so with his mission over, his prayer is about returning to the Father. The whole life of Jesus Christ is encapsulated in 1 Timothy 3 verse 16. Paul writes, beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. And then he states what it is. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and was taken up in glory. That's his life in one verse. encapsulated for us. In order to have ascension, God's Son had to descend to this earth. The world has missed this most basic of truths. They assume with the people of Jesus' hometown these same thoughts. Isn't this the carpenter's son? said all the neighbors. (laughs) Isn't his mother's name Mary? Aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. Matthew 13, verse 55. And may I say the world has taken offense at Christ ever since. They cannot figure him out. They cannot get their head wrapped around who he is 
because they deny his deity. Now this tremendous condescension and humiliation is described by Paul in Philippians chapter 2. He writes in verse 6 and following, Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. There you have a description of his condescension. In paradise with God, co-equal with God, and he, in humility, decides not to stay there, but to willingly become part of this realm. And being found in fashion as a man in a bodily form, he becomes obedient to the will of God. Even if obedience means a cross for him, and he follows that path. So in order to talk about ascension, we have to understand firstly that there was a coming down to earth. And that sets the whole mood for who this person is. And ought to help us understand why he is the only Savior. Secondly, spiritual victories and gifts to the church, his people, are the result of Jesus' ascension. Verse 8, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and he gave gifts to men. This is a reference to Psalm 68 verse 18, which is a description of God and His victories. Let me read it for you. When you ascended on high, you led captives in your train. You received, Paul says gave, gifts from men, even from the rebellious, that you, O Lord, might dwell there. So it's a reference to God. And again, plugging into Jesus' deity. The psalmist is describing what occurs when a king vanquishes his enemies. He takes the spoils of war. He defeats his enemies. He takes them captive. And in the ancient world, the captives became the servants of the conquerors. Think about Daniel. Think about his three companions under King Nebuchadnezzar. Think Nehemiah, Ezra, Zerubbabel, under Darius the Mede. The captives are taken into and become part of the kingdom. So I, well, I thought they would kill them. No, they were smarter than we are today. They take them captive. And the brainiacs, they incorporate into the kingdom and use them to advance their own cause. This is the picture in Ephesians 4. Christ comes as a king to war against people, you and me, and every sinner upon whom he has a rightful claim, people whose names are in his registry, but who have rebelled against him. 
And all that the Father gives him, come to him. John 6, verse 37. In utter surrender and defeat. John 17, verse 6 and 7 says, I have revealed to you, I have revealed you to those you gave me out of the world. They were yours, Father. You gave them to me, and they obeyed your word. And just as Nebuchadnezzar and Darius and Cyrus, to name another, did not kill Daniel and the others, but gave them back to the kingdom and used them for the good of their realm, so Christ, in his ascension, led the redeemed captives in his train. The train's not a, it's not that thing on a track, <laughs> young people. It's, it's a long flowing robes that a king might have uh, in his in his robes. He gave, he led the redeemed captive in, in that procession. And then he gave these captives as gifts to his church, as gifts to his kingdom. We have it in our text, verse 11 and 12. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. According to verse Corinthians 12, every member of Christ's church is a gift and every member of Christ's church has a gift to advance Jesus' kingdom. And so the coming of Christ into our realm, into our world, was a humiliation that resulted in great victory. Sin was routed, the fear of death removed, Satan defeated and his kingdom spoiled, Death was defeated in resurrection, and life eternal came to all who submitted to the Lordship of Christ, repented of their sin, and cast themselves upon His mercy. The cross was God's scepter by which He crushed all of His foes. But, as in any war, there are holdouts. People who refuse to be ruled by the conquering king who threaten and snipe at and persecute those who have become the king's willing subjects. So Christ ascends. He comes down. He does his work. He's resurrected. He ascends. He has captured people by the power of his work, the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he begins to rule. Now, that's the second point in our outline, but you have to understand that this ruling by Christ takes place the moment that the person comes to saving faith in Christ. When you stop being your own little Lord, your own little boss, the master of your own destiny, and submit to the will of God, instantaneously Christ has become, in an active sense, in your own consciousness now, your Lord and Savior. Note that Christ is ruling now. And under that, I've listed in your outline a statement on the session of Christ. The session. This is a doctrine concerning Christ which is not too well known or even very much spoken about in our day. The session of Christ. Think of session as a tribunal. I was watching a, um, a documentary on the uh, History Channel on the Nuremberg Trials of 1945 in which 
the German Nazi officers believed to have been involved in the atrocities of Hitler's Germany were put on trial by the United States and other nations as well. But anyway, uh, when the presiding American judge took his seat, he made this pronouncement. This tribunal is now in session. Which, of course, had reference to the fact that he had walked from his private chambers into the courtroom, sat down in an appointed official chair. He was dressed in a black robe. He called the court to order with the pounding of the gavel and made the statement, this tribunal is now in session. The Bible describes Christ's return to the Father as victor in similar terms. But his vesture was not black, but blood red. Let me read it for you. Who is this coming from Edom, from Bozrah, with his garments stained crimson? Who is this, robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why are your garments red, we ask, like those of someone treading the winepress? His answer, I have trodden the winepress alone. From the nations, no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments, and I stained all my clothing. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and the year of my redemption was come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave me support. So my own arm worked salvation for me, and my own wrath sustained me. I trampled the nations in my anger. In my wrath, I made them drunk and poured their blood on the ground. This is how you guided your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Look down from heaven and see from your lofty throne, holy and glorious. Where are your zeal and your might, your tenderness and compassion, are withheld from us. But you are our Father. Though Abraham does not know us or Israel acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer from of old is your name. Isaiah 63, verse 1 and following. Now his gavel is not a wooden mallet, but an iron scepter. And so equipped he takes his seat of authority to rule and reign even now. Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church was that they might know God's incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of His mighty strength which He exerted in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and, here it is, seated Him. Session. The doctrine of session. Seated Him at his right hand in the heavenly realm, far above all rule and authority, above all power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Ephesians 1, verse 19 through 21. He told the believers at Colossae, Since then you have been raised with Christ. 
Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Colossians 3, verse 1 and following. Or again, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful word. After He had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Hebrews 1 and verse 3. The author there says as well, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Observe, brethren, in all these texts that Jesus is said to have been seated or that He sat down all in the past tense, which means His rule began immediately after His ascension to glory. This doctrine of the session of Christ is something that is precious to all Christians. It means the boss of the universe is ruling from His throne right now amidst all of the turmoil that we see in our culture and in the world. Our God is seated on the throne. Our Savior is seated on the throne. Praise God. Which means His rule is intact. Now there are future aspects of His rule, but let us understand that He is seated on His throne right now. Right now. Now how is His rule evident? Well, firstly... He preserves, He protects, He prospers His subjects. That's you and me. In His priestly prayer, He asked the Father to protect His people from the evil one. What then do we see Him doing in heaven? Satan is given the title, the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God day and night. Revelation 12 verse 10. The book of Job tells us this. The angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. Job 1, verse 6. In chapter 2, verse 1, it said, Satan also came with them to present himself. Brethren, there is an accounting the angelic hosts must give to God concerning their actions, and it is no less true of Satan. But the text in the Revelation says that he accuses the brothers, the Christians, before our God, God the Father, day and night. That is a ceaseless, ongoing, never-ending harangue of villainous accusations bombard the ears of God night and day without end. God never sleeps, nor do the angels sleep. They're not like us. And Satan uses his time to remind God, as though God had to be reminded, that we, his people, are sinners. This tells us that when Satan has an audience with God, he uses it to tear us down. 
This may be the background of God's question to Satan. Have you considered my servant Job? That is, what do you have to say about righteous Job? His answer, does Job serve God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the works of his hands. Job 1 verse 9. Now he is implying in no uncertain terms that God has bought himself a follower by blessing all that Job does and by protecting him from any adversity or from any financial reversals. Here is Satan doing his work of accusing and slandering. He maligns God and he maligns Job before God. He makes it appear that Job only serves and obeys God for money. That is to say, that's the only way God can obtain followers if he buys them like some crooked politician handing out favors for a vote. Well, <laughs> the only reason Job serves you is because, you know, <laughs> you build a hedge around him, you protect him. He's wealthy. He's more wealthy than anybody in the East, if you read the text. And when you read his holdings, he is <laughs> extremely wealthy. He would make Warren Buffett look like a pauper. Yet Job lived upon his personal integrity and reputation as a righteous man, but he was attacked by Satan nonetheless. You know, we stand on something better. We stand before God when the accusations fly on the blood atonement and forgiveness that is found in Jesus Christ. One of the elders in John's vision explained who these people were dressed in white that surrounded his throne. And the explanation came, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are there for before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne, there it is again, the session of Christ, will spread His tent over them. Revelation 7, verse 13 through 15. Who are they? They are those that Christ has covered with His blood. And when it says they've made their robes white in the blood, it's talking about their, their righteousness that they have in their life is because of the sacrifice of Christ. Jesus said to his disciples, You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Luke 22, 
Verse 28 and following. And while his courage failed, his faith did not. Else we would not find Peter numbered with the believers after Jesus' crucifixion and present on resurrection morning to investigate the empty tomb. Yet the enthroned Christ prays not only for Peter, but for us. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant, says the scripture. Now there have been many of those priests, earthly priests, since death prevented them from continuing in office. So they die off. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Hebrews 7, 22 and 25. Let Satan and his minions accuse. Let him slander all they want. Who is he that condemns, writes Paul? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God. There it is again, seated, in session, always vigilant, always there. Seated at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Romans 8, verse 34. That work goes on now. We are sinners. We do fail God. But Christ has died. And then secondly, not only does Christ protect us and preserve us, but He restrains Satan's evil designs towards us and He overrules him. Again, Job's the classic example, is he not? Satan meant to break Job, but God used Satan to strengthen Job and bring him out of his trials a better man. Zechariah saw a vision concerning Joshua the high priest. Here's what he saw. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. True to his, true to his evil intent, there's Satan accusing one of God's priests. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? He's not yours anymore. I snatched him away from you. We read on. Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. Our sins, beloved, are fodder for Satan's accusations. They fuel his fiery rhetoric. Yeah, look at him. Look at all his sins. He's filthy. Let me read on. The angel said to these that were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. And then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin. That's what the filthy clothes stand for. And I will put rich garments on you. Then I said, Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and they clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. Zechariah 3, 1 through 5. The angel of the Lord is none other than Christ in his pre-incarnate or his pre-human state. Often spoken of in the Old Testament in that terminology. So when Satan accuses, 
Christ is there to defend and to defeat his intent. In the parable of the sower, Jesus explained the seed that fell along the path. And this is what he said. Some people are like seed along the hard path where the word is sown, scattered out. And as soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Mark 4, verse 15. Here again, another one of these attacks. So we ask then are none to hear and believe and be saved. I mean, the gospel goes forth. It's falling on people's hearts. And Satan comes along and gobbles it up. Gobbles up the seed or it can take root. Ah, but there is seed that is sown on good soil. Scripture says, Hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop 30, 60, or even 100 times what was sown. Christ thwarts Satan's attempts to ruin the saving work of the gospel. Again, I will build my church, said Christ, and the gates of hell will not Overcome it, Matthew 16, verse 18. The watchword then to us is this. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I'm reading scripture. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. And you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Revelation 2, verse 10. So Jesus, from His throne, looks down upon us, His people, and He governs the trials that come into our lives by the intent of the evil one. And yet He brings the crown of life to those Satan would kill and destroy. How we ought then to be encouraged to heed Jesus' Counsel, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. James 4 verse 7. Do you ever think that you could in your resisting have the devil flee from you? It's because Christ is right there. Ruling from his throne. Overruling the intent of that evil one. He will flee. He must flee when confronted with the power of the enthroned Christ. And that throne... Christ rules for, on behalf of his people. And then finally, Christ has promised to return. This is a shocker to unbelievers, but it's not a shocker to us. Jesus repeatedly describes his second coming in terms of a surprise when he's talking about the people of the world. For example... Surprise as the flood hit the days of Noah without warning. They were surprised. Jesus references that. As a bridegroom who appears at midnight when the virgin brides are asleep and they're not quite ready. They don't have oil for their land. As the stranger who forces his way into a homeowner's domain. As a thief in the night. As a wolf attacking the sheep. Surprise, surprise, surprise for the unbelieving of the world. And yet of the believers, 
Paul writes, you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. You know that. While people are saying, peace, safety, destruction will come on them suddenly. As labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. And so then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert, self-control, ready. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 2 and following. There's the world that's asleep and in the dark and lulling themselves asleep. Oh, safety, peace, oh, everything's going to be all right. And what a surprise, what a shock is coming. But Paul says, not so with you. If you're a believer, you are able to read the signs, look in the scriptures, believe the scriptures, the promises, and also the threats that are there and the warnings that are there. When Jesus comes, the revelation says, for as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Matthew 24, verse 27. And John says, Look, He's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of Him. So shall it be. Amen. Revelation 1, verse 7. You see anything hidden about that? You see anything about a secret coming? And note that he comes in power, not weakness. Again, reading the scripture, there will be signs in the sun, moon, stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And at that time they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Luke chapter 21, verse 25 and following. But note the believers. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come the time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints, and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Revelation 11, verse 17 and 8. You see the contrast. Same coming, same Christ, but two different reactions. People of the uh, world, surprised, shocked. Whoa, not ready, not prepared. But the believer is saying, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah. Come. Let's see your power. Vindicate yourself. Vindicate your people. And that's the third point. He comes to save his people. In Hebrews 9, Just as a man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. 
You only get to crucify Jesus one time. He's not taking it anymore. Evil men will not have the last word in this matter. And all of creation waits this day. Paul writes, the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Romans 8, verse 21 through 23. Don't we groan? We do. We live in a cursed world. We struggle with our sin. Salvation isn't quite yet in terms of everything. We need to think of salvation comprised of different stages. There's the planning stage in which you and I We're no more than a thought in the mind of God. We read, For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will. Ephesians 1, verse 4 and 5. That's the planning stage. God determined that He was going to adopt people into His family. And then there's the enactment stage. God sent His Son born of Mary. His life, His ministry, His cross, His resurrection. The day of our actual salvation. We read, And you were also included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until... The redemption of those who are God's possession. Ephesians 1, verse 13 and 14. We're sealed. We're waiting. There's there's no nebulousness about it. There's no scariness about it. You can't lose your salvation if you're in Christ. But we're still waiting for that final redemption. And redemption is that third stage. Jesus put it this way lovingly to his disciples in John 14. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. The beloved disciple wrote, Dear friends, now, right now, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. 1 John 3, verse 2 promises that he's coming back to receive us unto himself. Now for most of us that's going to be the hour of our death. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. 
But for some, alive at his coming, we will be changed in the twinkling of an eye, says Paul, still to be made like unto his glorious and resurrected body. He comes back for his people. That's the great hope of every believer. This is Christ. Descended, ascended, seated, ruling, returning. Coming back for his people. Accomplishing the full orb of his responsibility and work as assigned by the Father. No love like this that started in eternity past brought the reality in time-space history and has promised a future with him in glory. God saving from start to finish because he loves his people. I hope you're one of his people this morning. If not, you can be by grace through faith. Our Lord, send thy spirit to quicken hearts, to open our eyes to the truth of your word. We might see this one who has accomplished everything on our behalf that needs to be accomplished to bring us out of darkness, out of the kingdom of darkness, out of the hold of the evil one into the kingdom of light, the Lord Jesus Christ. We bless thee for so great a work. And it's you that have done it all. It's you that gets the credit. We would have it so. Now, Lord, we anticipate your coming, but we don't know when that's going to be. We just know the promise has been made. And inasmuch as you kept all those promises concerning your first coming, we have every realization that your promises on your second coming will be fulfilled as well. What we are told to do is to be ready, to be waiting, to be watching, to be busy about the master's business. May that be the case. For any that are estranged from you, that have still not come to know you as Savior, may they see you as the great Creator and Lord that you are, and may they desire your salvation. Grant that to them, Lord. For every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that you are Lord. Wonderful, wonderful, if the bowing of the knee and the confession of the tongue is a willing and loving coming to Christ rather than being forced to do so by the iron scepter of your rule. Bless us this day with your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Our closing hymn is from Red Hymnal.